Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Ford. Chris is a partner out of Foley's Chicago and LA offices with a focus on labor and employment. And this conversation is extremely hard for me to summarize in a nice, tidy intro for everybody listening. You see, in this talk, we spent about the first 30 minutes or so talking about Chris's professional path to partner at Foley. And what you'll hear is that Chris really started off as a guy who kind of went where the wind took him. He said, you know, I never really had a grand plan, made a lot of decisions in my life based on gut. You know, he talks about how he didn't even visit the law school that he went to before he started attending. But what I love about this conversation is that underlying everything we talk about is this journey of self-awareness. Because after we get through Chris's path at Foley, which is pretty interesting. We then talk about the role that Chris has played in establishing a program at Foley called Foley Best Self, a well-being program. Although, as Chris says, he's like, it's not really a program. It's not really an initiative. It's a cultural identity effort. You see, Chris has been through some difficult stuff in his life. And the way that he has been able to manage those things is getting help, you know, going to therapy, talking about it. And so after he attended a partner event with a well-known individual who talked about attorney well-being, He went up to firm leadership and said, hey, this was fantastic, but you know what? We need to talk about the really hard stuff too. We shouldn't just focus on the positive ways to deal with um, difficult things in your life. And so Chris has done that. Within Foley and Lardner, he is known as somebody who's very candid, who shared a lot about his journey and his difficulties, and he does this on the podcast. So about 40 minutes in, Chris talks about the hard things he's navigated and why it's so important to him that lawyers learn that asking for help when dealing with the hard stuff in life is not weakness, that it's really a strength. And so I hope you gain something from this discussion. I hope he makes you feel a little bit more human or rather that it's okay to be human. And we wrap it up also by Chris sharing a little bit about some of the work he's doing on racial equity and his own learnings. So like I said, this conversation is a lot. It runs a little bit longer than my average podcast, but I think you will quickly understand why. And I hope you truly enjoy my discussion with Christopher Ward. Chris Ward, welcome to the podcast. Let's just dive straight in and have you start by giving your professional intro. Sure. So my name is Christopher Ward. I'm a labor and employment attorney, and I consider my job to be two things, to be a problem solver and to help you make your business better. And then let's start at the very beginning. So where are you from? Where did you grow up? Grew up in the suburbs north of Los Angeles. In fact, the house that I grew up in was less than a mile away from the hospital where I was born. So by the time I was 18 years old and looking for schools, my criteria were two, good school, not anywhere near where I grew up. And let's get specific. What's the name of the suburb or suburbs? So it was uh, Valencia, California, Um, actually the same place where Six Flags has their California location. That was my first job. In fact, I was a lifeguard at the uh, Hurricane Harbor water park. And to this day, I tell myself if I could make a decent living being a lifeguard, I would go back to doing that because that sure was fun for a teenage kid to do. Never too late. That could be some sort of retirement job. Yeah. Never say never. (laughs) I don't think my wife and kids would go for that at this point, you know. 
Well, tell me a bit about you as a kid growing up in California, because now you're in the Midwest and we have a, we have a gap to close and we will get to the fun, like college law school stuff. But, but what was it like growing up there? You know, it was, I would describe it sadly as the pretty typical suburban white male experience. You know, I mean, I, I had a very affluent, comfortable life. School was, I hate to say it, relatively easy, but important in succeeding in school. And I realized probably when I was about 12 that my dreams of being a professional athlete were never going to come to fruition because that's just not the body type I have. If you've never seen me before, I'm about I'm about five six, and up until maybe a couple of years ago, was pretty scrawny. So you know, I just wasn't built to be the athlete that I always wanted to be, and that's kind of well. And 12 is early to give up on those dreams. I mean, weren't you banking on growing some? I don't know in high school or what. <laughs> What made you such a realist? Not if you've seen my parents, no. No, it was just one of those moments like, you know, I've got to kind of embrace my inner nerd at this point. That's probably the path to success for me is through my brain rather than my body. So, you know, I played hockey that I kind of quit doing everything but hockey when I was 12 because that was like right after the Wayne Gretzky trade to the LA Kings. And that inspired me. And I played hockey all the way up through law school. But that was kind of the moment where I was like, you know, I'm going to do just hockey because I love it. I like getting my head kicked in every day by dudes who are twice my size. But yeah, that was kind of that moment. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm a nerd. Like I'm good at school. I enjoy it. It comes relatively simple to me. So I might as well just embrace it. Thank you for elaborating on that. Cause my question was going to be, so what kind of kid were you? So now I have this vision of this as you know, self-described nerd who plays hockey. I mean, is that it? Is there more to say? Well, <laughs> I was kind of like the cool nerd, right? Like I was, I was clearly the nerd and everybody knew I was the nerd, but at the same time, like all of the jocks and the athletes and, you know, the skaters and the stoners and all that stuff. Like I could move kind of freely within those groups and talk to people. Like it was just sort of one of those things where I realized early on not to take myself too seriously because I was the best source of entertainment material and jokes was my own personality. And so just kind of ride with it. But yeah, I mean, I was always the nerd who didn't like, if you were to draw up the nerd archetype on a cartoon, I wouldn't look like that. Right. But I certainly was that kind of kid. Yeah. So my husband played hockey, still plays hockey, like a adults men's league. So I have some appreciation and frame of reference. Officially known, by the way, as beer league, not yes. adult men's league. It's beer yes. league. Yeah. I'm trying to be charitable and kind for this publicly available podcast. <laughs> but but yes, I never had exposure to that as a sport or all of the gear until I, I met him. And now my seven-year-old plays hockey as well. I would actually love to get into beer leagues here. It's just, it's one of those like time is a commodity and that's not how I want to choose the the time that I have for my own discretion. And you're always skating at like 11 o'clock at night. That's the thing. I'm just too old to do that crap anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. exactly. (laughs) All right. So I have a snapshot of what Chris was like. I don't know if this is like that middle school, high school period. So talk to me about the going off to college, professional aspirations, what did you think you wanted to do with your life when you were still a kid? So I went from this evolution of professional athlete to, all right, I'm going to be a doctor, right? Okay, because why not? That sounds great. And I think that was probably my plan right up until maybe the senior year of, of high school when I decided, you know, no, I'm going to be the great American novelist. Like I'm going to write this opus, you know, work and that's kind of where I found myself as as a senior. But you'll hear this throughout. I did not have this like grand plan for my life. I am very much more 
a person who I did not define my path. I sort of saw a path and made some decisions and it's worked out, but I'm very fortunate that life has come to me as much as I've gone through it. But in any event, so, you know, senior, and, and as I said, my two criteria were far from home and, you know, good school. And so I was in at Cornell and I was in at Northwestern and I was in at George Washington where my older sister was going to school at the time. And I'd gone and visited her and enjoyed that. I mean, they actually offered me a pretty generous scholarship opportunity, but I really liked Northwestern when I had visited it. I thought Chicago was cool. And like, I can literally take you back to this moment. I was getting in the car on a Saturday morning with my dad to drive to LAX. We were flying to Syracuse to go visit Cornell. And I just remember having this sort of like, you know, I just really don't feel like going. I'm going to go Northwestern. I told my dad right there. I'm like, hey, I don't want to go. So what do you mean you don't want to go? We don't need to do this. I said, let's not wait. I don't want to go. I'm going to go to Northwestern. He looked at me and said, are you serious? Like, really? Don't you think that's kind of reckless? I'm like, no, I've made up my mind. And that was it. Like, so Fine. Turn around. I went to to Northwestern. You know, like I'd never, other than like the, you know, overnight I'd done on the campus. I'd never been to Chicago. I didn't know really anything other than school, other than in 1996, they'd played in the Rose Bowl and that got a whole bunch of national attention. It was very much one of those decisions that I've made in my life that were like really, really critical decisions that I made on feel instead of analysis. But hey, I works out. There's something to that gut, that intuition, even when you're, I don't know, 17. But I, I can't knock your decision. I went to American University in Washington, D.C. for undergrad. I never visited the school. I'd been to D.C., but ultimately, as you know, came down to like scholarship money and you're like, yeah, it looks great. I get to leave home. I'm on board. Let's go. Oh, I, I ended up going to Illinois for law school without having ever been there. You know, like literally I'd never been there. And I decided that's where I'm going. And, you know, fast forward, I guess, four years, I had applied to law schools mostly because I didn't really have a better idea of what I wanted to do with my life. I finished up Northwestern's on the quarter system. So I actually finished up both of my degrees by the end of the first quarter of my senior year. I already had a job um, at a human resources consulting firm that I was working, that I'd interned in at the summer and then was working full-time as soon as I finished my school. And I knew right away, like, I didn't want to stay in that career forever. It just wasn't for me, but I didn't have a better plan. And all my friends were like, oh, I'm going to law school. We're doing like, sweet, I'll take the LSAT. What's the LSAT? And I literally signed up and took the LSAT the day after my 21st birthday, which probably wasn't the smartest thing in the world to do, but whatever. I did it. And I applied to a bunch of schools. I was in at USC law. I was in at Northwestern law. I was in at Illinois law. And I kind of thought, oh, I'll either go to Northwestern law or USC law. And then I realized I told them both I was coming because I hadn't made up my mind. And then that summer uh, after my senior, I realized I'm just not ready to go back to school yet. I'm just not ready to go back to school yet. So I called up both Northwestern and USC and said, can I defer my admission for a year? And both of them kind of laughed at me and said, no. No, no, no you not. Okay. Right? So I worked for a year. I applied to fewer schools a second time around, got waitlisted at SC and Northwestern from both schools, but did get into Illinois again. But in the interim period of time, I had become an Illinois resident, which made University of Illinois quite attractive oh, financially. A lot more attractive suddenly. Yes. yes. So yeah. that is literally the reason I went to Illinois. I was like, well, sure. I, I'm going to go to law school. I don't really have a great plan for that either, other than apparently I'm going to do this. So let's just go somewhere where my student debt load will be not as horrific. 
as well. Let me just make a little commentary here. And I appreciate what you said maybe three minutes ago about, you know, I didn't have some grand plan. And the thing is, with this podcast, there's lots of different focuses I have. One, it's Foley attorneys and folks at Foley get to know their colleagues, but also for the law students listening and anybody else, just to prove that I can pull up your, I can pull up Christopher Ward's bio and we are going to talk about it. You are an accomplished, you know, labor and employment litigation partner at Foley. But I think it, it feels good to hear someone, particularly for the law students to look at your bio. They're not going to hear this. Like they're not going to hear. And so I just love your candor with that. And I'm, I'm convinced that all of us, we are just doing our best and figuring it out mostly as we go. It is great to do research. I highly recommend that students be more intentional than I was with some of the things that I did, but hey, oh, me too. I really <laughs> like where I am. I'm not, I can't complain about my president, right? Sure. But yes, yes. I'm so impressed by the people on the podcast are like, oh, I knew I was going to be a lawyer from this, that, or the other, or you know, I was at Marcella who said I, I didn't have any idea how I was going to get there. And her path was very long, but I knew this was where I was going to go. And I'm just like, man, you know, I just, I guess I should just be so f- aware of how fortunate I've been because I did not have that path. But you know what? Like, it's okay to change your mind, read the tea Absolutely. leaves and make sure that, you know, you're not committed to something that you realize you don't want to do. Well, and there's a lot to just trying. At some point, you just need to move forward and see what works for you. And I think many of us are convinced it's all a matter of introspection. If I just look hard enough inside, I'll know the answer. When really, I think a lot of it is just like, you need to go do something. Hopefully, it's something you sort of like. And hopefully, it's something that's not irreversible should you hate it. Right. But move forward and you will get closer to whatever is probably most in alignment with you. Absolutely. Yeah. And that Marcella Jane podcast, I think, is number four for anybody who's interested, who's listening. She's amazing. Just amazing. Everybody should listen to this. Who cares if you want to be a lawyer or not? Just an amazing hour of information. Totally agree. Okay. So now you are in law school. You're at Illinois. Your tuition is reasonable. How's law school for you? So I went, by the time I went to law school and decided, all right, I'm going to do this. I also had realized like, if I'm going to do this, I should probably like have some idea of why and what I'm after. And in the interim period of time, so I'm dating myself here a bit, right? But that summer and fall that I was working was the summer and fall of 2001. And I remember distinctly my experience on September 11th, 2001, and how I felt in the aftermath. And so I thought very hard, actually, about trying to become an officer in in the Navy at that point, because I felt that call, like, you know, at the time. And I ultimately decided against it. But then as I decided I was not wanting to do this human resources consulting job, I was going to go to law school and I was still sort of feeling that pull to to be in the military. I thought, oh, well, you know what? Perfect. I will be a JAG officer. Like that's And the Navy has an actual program for incoming law school students where at the end of your first year, you can apply to the program and you have to like interview with some captains and admirals and all this stuff, but they have a, a path for that. And so I was actually in that program path and I had started it and then, you know, met a girl and realized that my dream in in the Navy was to basically be deployed on an aircraft carrier calling out rules of engagement and didn't really feel like I wanted to be the kind of person who I was only home with my spouse and my family for a couple months of the year. And so I had sort of that moment where I thought, "Mm, maybe that's not for me. And then my thinking just really shifted to, all right, well, I'm here. I don't really know what I'm going to do but I'm committed. Like, I'm just going to get the best job I can get. That's it. I'm going to get the best job I can get. 
and I'll take the next step from there. And as it happened, shortly after that was when we had sort of the the parade of law firm people coming through. And I remember talking to two guys from the Chicago office at Foley, and both of them just seemed like normal dudes, like mm, down to yep, earth, regular people, normal yep. dudes. And I remember thinking like, you know, that's kind of refreshing because I just, I can't handle the stuffiness. It's not my jam. And so that was literally the firm I decided I'm going to go work there. Like, like I, it was my decision, right? That's it. <laughs> so, you know, so, but I did a little research. I did interview with them at OCI. And at the time I thought I wanted to move back to Los Angeles. Like that was always my plan. You know, I was going to go back home at some point. So everybody in career services kept telling me you can't, you can't OCI in Chicago for Los Angeles jobs, even though you've got a real strong tie, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, mm, the hell I can't, I'm going to do it, you know? And I interviewed in OCI, I got an offer to be a summer in the LA office between my second year. And here I am today, still at Foley. And now you're out of the Chicago office. Correct. The- theoretically, up until March of this year, my primary office was really an airplane seat in American Airlines. But yeah, It was wherever I was traveling for work. All right. So I don't know. It's been 15 years or so at Foley. We can't talk about every moment of it, but reflect on that for me. You start, are you like, I know I'm going to be a litigator. I know employment's for me. How, how did that work? I am where I am today because of Jack Lasseter. Rest in peace. He just recently passed. He was my partner mentor. He had just joined Foley that same summer that I was a summer. Had no idea what I, I literally had no, I, I was still in that moment of just, I'm going to get the best job I can get. I'm going to just kind of see where things go. Jack was new at Foley. He was being groomed to become the OMP of the LA office. He's a mover, shaker, busy guy. I literally didn't see him the entire summer, even though he was my partner mentor, right? And finally, about two weeks ago before the end of the summer, he contacts me and says, hey, I've been you know, remiss. I'm so sorry. Let's grab lunch, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So we go and grab lunch. Nice guy. You know, I'm a little intimidated because I, Jack is kind of was this larger than life character. And he says to me, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this. You're going to get a job offer at the end of the summer. And just so you know, our LA office is really going to need young labor and employment talent. I think there's going to be an opportunity there if that's something you're interested. I was like, sure. If if it's good enough for Jack, it's good enough for me, right? So I took an employment discrimination class my third year of law school, decided, you know, if that's what Jack tells me I should do, then I should do it. Came in and you know, within the first couple of months of being there, you had to kind of knock on the doors a little bit because the, the idea was always, oh, you come in in litigation. We don't like to practice group you for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, but they told me this is where. So I just made an effort to get to know the, the two LNE partners in LA at the time and really get to work with them. And by maybe six months in, I was fully in as an LNE associate in, in the LA office. And in retrospect, again, that's just one of those moments in my life where I think, how crazy, right? Because it I can't deal with like thousands and thousands of documents. I can't deal with like asset purchase agreements and finagling over, you know, paragraph 13 B6 of an 88 page asset purchase agreement. Or like L&E is really as much about the people as it is about the law, right? I mean, you've got to know the law and you've got to obviously understand litigation and strategy, but this is more about managing egos and managing personalities to be mutually successful. And I mean that both on the client side and on like the opposition side. Like this is such a, a, a human-based practice area. For me, I, it works, right? I, I don't do a great job getting down into the weeds of technicalities. I'm much more of a, a people person. And so it's made 
it's really been the right area for me, for sure. That really resonates with me because before I left practice, I went from general commercial litigator working on whatever you said, section whatever, B of whatever giant thing, and eventually focused on being a labor and employment lawyer. The through line being it got me closer to the people. And then eventually I was like, I don't need the law part. I just need the people part. Yeah. <laughs> so, well. so now I do DNI work, but I do, I do hear you on that. And I will say, I'm working to get more corporate folks on this podcast because in some ways I've had, an, well, not even some, I've had a number of L&E partners on the show so far. And I'm, I'm looking at myself and I'm like, is this my own bias? But then I also realize a number of you are in key leadership positions that I'd like to highlight externally. So it's not just the fact that I'm biased towards lit and employment, but I think I also am. So if listeners are curious, but I'm aware of it and I'm working on it. And the other part of that, by the way, and I'll keep this as G-rated as possible, but your your friendly neighborhood labor and employment lawyer always has the best stories, hands down, bar none. That's true. Period. We tell the best stories because we've seen stuff. Literally, there's still, after 15 some years of this, at least once a week, somebody calls me up and tells me a situation and my reaction is, what on earth are people like, thinking? What? what are they doing said, at wait, work? Wait, I'm sorry, what? What are they right, doing like, at work? Why did you do that? Well, and tell me more. Tell me about about your your practice and your your areas of focus and all of that. So it's really evolved, right? It's it's another one of those things where the the ocean has opened in front of me, and I've just sort of thrown my sail up and let it let the wind take me where it wanted me to go. I would say I started in obviously out in LA, and at the time we had a couple major health systems that we were representing, where we did a lot of their union collective bargaining work plus you know a lot all their single plaintiff employment discrimination so i really cut my teeth as a young associate doing the the core stuff on both sides whereas right now like very few people get the opportunity to have traditional labor experience very few firms are really doing that anymore but i was getting all of it um, and i was getting a lot of responsibility at the time and then Right, you know, in about maybe my third to fourth year of practice was when the wage and hour, the California wage and hour class action wave really started to crest. Um, and we had had somebody who was kind of our wage and hour guru who left. And one of the partners who's now retired, Rick Albert, kind of came up to me and said, we're going to need somebody to take over Gail's, you know, expertise in this. I think you should do it. And I remember thinking, oh, I hate wage and hour. It's disgusting and so technical and boring. But all right, I'll do it, you know. And then Suddenly, I, you know, I became a, a wage and hour class action attorney, which was a huge opportunity. And I really got involved with that. And then especially in California, just pause there, just especially in California. And I have that appreciation since for a whole, oh, I don't know, 18 months of my life. I was I was a dedicated labor and employment lawyer. Um, I was at Cypher Shaw. But I remember if California came up, I was like, oh, I need to go find a California lawyer. Yeah, I don't I'm not touching this. And the crazy thing, so at the same time frame too, right? In 2008, I decided I wanted to leave LA and transfer to Chicago. And at the time I was thinking this was like career death, right? Because I knew California was where it was at for labor and employment. And Foley was very actually resistant at first when I asked to transfer, like, we really need you out in LA. We really need you in California. And it kind of came to this where it was like, listen, I'm going because for family reasons, I'm going. And I would really like to stay with the firm. But if I can't stay with the firm, I'm going to have to resign. And that then became like, well, we don't want to lose you. So I, they tra- I, they agreed to transfer me here. But as I thought that was going to be career suicide, it has been exactly the opposite. The amazing thing in, in the, you know, gosh, it's been so long now since I moved out here. My practice has never fallen below about 75% California-based. 
And it's just gotten easier easier to do as technology has gotten better. But the thing that really has been a boon for me is the ability to truly be a national practitioner now, right? Because I am outside of California. I have clients who have nationwide operations. I can literally service them everywhere out of my own brain for the most part. And I can do all the California stuff, which is a different world, right? So that's the stuff that keeps me the busiest just from a volume perspective, but from a value perspective, client gets one-stop shop with me, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can truly be their, their one source to manage all of their labor and employment needs and bring a, co a cohesive view to their entire operation. And of course at, you know, 28 or however old I was, I had no idea this was going to be what had happened. But in retrospect, yeah, actually moving out here and getting out of California while still being a California lawyer was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Well, yeah, I was going to say, even looking at your bio, I didn't appreciate, I didn't read it closely enough to see that you're licensed in California. And so I was like, but he lives here. Why yeah. does he, why does it say all this California stuff? No, I, I started in our LA office. I practiced out yeah. there for three years, tried K. I mean, I got a ton of amazing experience in my first couple of years of practice, you know, trying cases, you know, taking depositions so early on. And uh, I had two great partner mentors out there. And it's so funny. I remember when people were, I was, people were like, you, you want to do L&E? You want to work for, for these two guys? And I'm like, yeah, they seem fine. I loved them and they loved me, right? It was just, it's a personality-based practice. And I think if you're not sort of in it, it's hard to get it. But we had for a couple of years out in LA, we had a great team and it was fun. And then we had this whole, we were in Century City and we needed to move the office downtown for just, you know, optics and business reasons. And it was the right decision. But that was kind of the time where the team, it, it's like a great baseball team where free agent contracts are starting to come up. Like, you know, there's a sunset, right? And that was sort of the sunset was when we moved from Century City to LA office. And then you know, some some people decided to take jobs to keep them in Century City. I didn't care personally. It was more of a I move into Chicago. But man, those first couple of years in LA were they were fun, and I learned so much that I didn't even realize I was learning at the time. Well, and the learning curve is so steep in those first couple of years. And also for those who aren't familiar, California with an employment law just has a lot of regulation, a lot of rules, and it looks different from other states. And um, in terms of class action or maybe even collective action, it can be a plaintiff's lawyer's dream. Oh, yeah. I'm biased because um, you can sue an employer because line number four on your pay stub does not comport with California wage order number 562. And we see you've been doing this for three years for 72,000 employees. <laughs> oh, this technical glitch is a seven-figure liability for you, right? When you didn't do anything wrong and nobody got harmed, right? Yeah. No, you, you got to know your audience, right? So often when I am talking to clients and they're sort of lamenting the challenge that is California, I often tell them something along the lines of, you got to understand that when it comes to labor and employment, there's the other 49 states and then there's the People's Republic of California. And that always gets a laugh and sort of chills people out. And then you can talk, right, and try and solve problems. But you got to meet people where they're at and understand their frustration and just tell them like, hey, I, I get it, right? It is frustrating. This is the way exactly. it is, though. Can't change it. And, the, and for those who aren't aware, normally at a large law firm, we're defense side, not exclusively, but but normally. So in the labor employment right. context, we're we're often the ones working with and guiding the employer through whether it be you know litigation or through having whatever um, internal processes to keep them in compliance 
with the law. So that's just kind of the general, what tends to be going on with our l lawyers, unless like you said, you're doing union stuff. You have a pretty full spectrum labor and employment practice outside of maybe, I mean, benefits, which is viewed as probably right. fully corporate. So right. very, very interesting. And that's why, you know, I think we try to really, we don't describe ourselves as litigators or counselors as much as I, I we're problem solvers, right? Because you gotta, you gotta be a litigator because you're going to handle the the litigation, but you can't just be a litigator. You know, you're going to deal with labor strife and whatnot. So you got to know that stuff. But listen, you got to, the best thing that I try and do is get clients to shift their mindset from being reactive to proactive, right? Like you can, instead of wondering why this stuff is happening and why it costs so much money, you can spend your legal service dollars to diagnose and improve. And that is such a it's a predictable spend instead of a reactive unpredictable spend and that's how you make a business better you avoid some of these risks and you ultimately get better leadership and you get better work out of your people when when you're investing in that way so that's really something as i was talking about my career arc right i I went from being this wage and hour litigator to kind of a a railway labor act specialist for you know the the second half of the obama administration because i have a client that is in that industry um, and there's only like 10 Railway Labor Act practitioners in the country. So I had to kind of learn that to deal with their challenges. And then when federal policy uh, for, you know, under the National Mediation Board changed, that's kind of when I got into this, like, all right, you know, I don't, I will litigate, but I don't want to be a litigator. I do the wage and hour stuff, but I don't want that to be my identity. There's not enough for me to just do Railway Labor Act stuff all the time. Like, I also, like... And that's that point. I was like, I really just want to be like the strategic partner. And we throw that phrase around all the time. But that really means something to me in the sense that like if I'm doing my job well, I shouldn't even be thinking about Foley and Lardner's bottom line. I should just be thinking about yours and believe that my success and our firm's success will follow yours. Because that's my job as a lawyer. It's not to put our interests first. It's not to try and bill more hours or to collect more. It's to try and make the client's business better. And believe that success will follow for us if we do that well. And to this day, that's really like the ethos in my mind that when we went to law school and when we took that oath, really what that oath means is the client's interest before our own. Mm-hmm. I think that's also the ethos of Foley as well, what you just said. Right. I really do believe that. You know, I, I just I wrote something a couple of days ago where we're gonna talk about that. Yeah, the but the we're point was that, you know, I believe that the firm tries to do the right thing. And you can differ on what the quote unquote right thing is, but it's a lot harder to argue about whether doing the right thing is at the core of your decision making. That's far less subjective to me. And I do think doing the trying to do the right thing is truly a core value of who we are as a firm. Yep. It's definitely a North Star. And before we talk even more about that, going back to your career arc, can you say some things about that transition from associate to senior counsel to partner? And I also recognize you write a fair amount. You may even speak a fair amount. How did your practice change once you became a partner? How did the firm support you in it? Just say things about it. So, well, I was right, you know, when I was in law school, and here's my first bit of advice, right? Like, it was eight and a half year partner track, right? That was everything that was on everybody's NALP page. If there is still such a thing as NALP and all that stuff. There is. Okay, there good. Is. You know, by the time that I was a third year associate, that eight and a half, it was pretty clear that eight and a half year track was bogus, right? Like it just wasn't, the world had changed. It wasn't do good job, 
bill your hours, be a good lawyer, and you'll make partner. It was very much like, no, this is now about contributing to the enterprise. That's what our partners will be doing. And I, again, like I am a very fortunate person and I am very aware of this. I had a relationship when we moved from Century City to LA, one of the partners who I worked with decided to take a job and the client, his one of his newest clients originally transferred the work to him. But I sort of stayed in touch with them because I was doing the work. And then that relationship just kind of fell into my lap. It came back mm-hmm. to Foley relatively quickly. And, you know, I was the only one who'd worked on it. So as a fourth year associate, I had my own client relationship of a like a legit client, right? That was nationwide and growing. They were international and growing in the United States and growing faster than they could figure out and didn't have a sense of the regulatory world. So we were busy. And in the first year that it was, quote unquote, my relationship, it was like a $35,000 a year relationship. And within three years, it had gone over a million. And I'm sort of sitting there going like, hey, you know, I've sort of proven the ability to contribute to the enterprise. I've got a million dollar client here. You know, you're telling me all of my skills are at the senior council level. Plus, I've got the indicators. I should get promoted early. Right. And they kind of looked at me like, no. I said, well, why not? You know, you're sort of deterrent. Like, I get that I'm the exception to the rule. Right. But you're sort of when you have somebody who's super for and I'm not going to say super good. I'm going to say super fortunate. Somebody who's super fortunate, but super valuable. Shouldn't we recognize that? And that was actually the year that they said, all right, well, we're not going to have a set stone lockstep like you must have done six years before your senior counsel. But there will be extremely rare circumstances where somebody might get promoted. And I got promoted a year early. So I actually was promoted to senior counsel after, I think, five years. And then kind of the same thing happened with partnership, where I was just kind of like, listen, I know that it's, quote, unquote, not my time or they're slotting and all that stuff. But like, what do I have left to prove in terms of my profile for partnership? And so I, I don't know how many there are, but I'm, I made partner in eight and a half years at Foley and Lardner. And wow. I know nobody does that anymore. And listen, I'm aware of the fact that I'm a good attorney. I'm aware of the fact that I have skills to develop relationships, but so much happened that just like what it, I won't say it fell into my lap, but I got some really big opportunities drop in front of me. And to my own credit, I saw them and I took mm-hmm. them you and I made them. them, but I did not create them, right? And mm-hmm. I, I have been very fortunate. So that was my path up to partner. And I always sort of thought, once you're partner, like, okay, now you got it made. You know, oh, like, yeah, you're not, good life. You're but, done. It's so much, this job is so much harder as a partner. And honestly, the reason for that is like, what you're trying to do every day is so much different. You know, I remember like, and I hated commoditizing my life. Like, all right, every day I take off means I've got to work an extra half hour to hit my billable hours goals. Like I hated that mindset and I was so looking forward to getting rid of it. And I will say for the most part, I don't think about that like I used to. I just like, I worry about stuff, you know, like what, once you're responsible for things, you can't hide under the shadow of another partner or whatever. Like it's really you and you are, you know, as a 35-year-old punk kid with, you know, gray-haired business dudes looking to you to help with multi-million dollar decisions for their business. Like, yeah, I worry about that stuff and I don't shy away from it. I come home and tell my wife, like, can you believe these people believe me and trust me? What's wrong with them? But, you know, that's the part that makes this job hard now. It's not the it's not the punching the clock aspect. It's the sense of 
responsibility. It's the understanding that people are truly relying on your intelligence and your judgment and your ability to problem solve for them. That this is the stuff that I love, but it's also the stuff that makes this the most challenging now at this point in my career and has been ever since I became partner. Well, and you just said so many things. Okay, so for those who don't know, Foley is a single tiered partnership, meaning all partners are equity partners at Foley. We have a senior council level, which is, I'd say, sort of equivalent to that non-equity tier you'd see at other firms. But Foley very much, I think, has this individualized look. It's taking at people. There is not this like automatic advancement to the title of partner. I think that's the best way way to say it. There's also not the automatic advancement to senior counsel. They're truly looking at you, like you said, can you contribute to this organization, to the business, you know, very much also stewardship, you know, do you care about this place and the way that we need you to, and are you servicing clients in the way you should be? But then when you talked about how, and this is something that I think is like a sneak peek behind the scenes, law students don't think about it because you're like, I'm a law student, I want a job, I'll bill. And I think someone makes me partner one day if I do that, that it is more complicated than that, that the job does not necessarily get quote unquote easier. Sure, it's now easier in that maybe you know what's going on. Whereas that is as a first year, you just literally didn't know what was happening. Right. But the stakes and the responsibilities, those are ever increasing. So it's not the case that you're a partner and you quote unquote have it made. You walk off into the sunset <laughs> while reading things drafted by associates. It's not quite as straightforward as that. So I just love that you elaborated on that and explained those dynamics because I don't I don't think I've had anyone explain that on the show. So thank you, Chris. You are welcome. If just listen to those last five minutes and ignore the rest, there's the value for everybody. Else. <laughs> there you go. Well, and the other thing, so I want to switch gears a little bit because as I said, what I'm finding is a, and this is not to disparage any other practice group, but there are a number of partners in the labor and employment group who are in a variety of leadership roles in the firm, whether it be affinity groups or, you know, the, the partners I've had on who are the chairs of labor and employment But for you, a reason I had to have you on was to talk about Foley Best Self, to talk about attorney well-being, because to say you've been candid in your well-being journey, I think is a vast understatement. I still don't fully know the origins of Foley Best Self. So maybe we could start by taking a moment to just say what that is and what your role in it is, and then we can talk a little bit more about you. Okay. So we'll we'll do Foley Best Self first, and then maybe how this became the, the passion project for me that it is. So So Foley Best Self is, I don't want to call it an initiative. I don't want to call it a project. I don't want to call it a program. I want to, to me, it's like cultural identity effort, which sounds so buzzy, right? But the practice of law is very stressful. And we as attorneys, most people who are big firm attorneys in particular, but attorneys have generally been high achievers their entire life, right? We've done well in school. We've done well on standardized tests. There's an archetype for a lot of lawyers. And one of the challenges to that archetype is we don't deal with failure particularly well. We are not comfortable making mistakes. And what that really boils down to is we're not okay with our own humanity and vulnerability. And as a consequence, we have, as a profession, higher you know indicators of substance abuse and mental health and disp- depression and i think all of this is because we're hardwired to be high achievers and we can't all be the best once we get to the group of everyone's the best right and the practice is hard so i was sort of looking at this as you can't throw a band-aid at this stuff right you have to actually peer into the darkness and get comfortable with being uncomfortable before you can 
really make any change. And so while 2019 or 20, yeah, I guess it was 2019 was, I guess, the year of mental health in, in law practice. I was looking at it from this perspective of, I don't want to just put stuff out there because that's what the market is doing. If we're going to do this, I want to do it right. And doing it right means being honest about it. And doing it right means making this part of our identity, not just something we put on the website and publicize, right? And so let's take our time with this. And the first thing we need to do is really get people to be okay with this idea that, hey, it's okay not to be okay. You're a human, you're a person. We are all humans and we are all people. And how do we start telling people it's okay to be vulnerable? We still have to be high achievers. We still have to have excellence in everything we do. But in the process of achieving excellence, it's okay to sit there and say, man, this is hard and this sucks sometimes. And I'm not doing really well right now, you know, either because of work or because of personal life stuff or whatever. And so that was sort of the genesis of best self is let's do this differently and let's try and pull some of this stuff that we have been hardwired to keep in the shadows and shine some light on it. And so that to me is what best self is, is it's about trying to bring this concept to the idea of health and wellness, where we are all humans. We are all people. We all have insecurities. We all have vulnerabilities. And those things actually make us stronger. When you can embrace your weaknesses, it takes an immense amount of confidence and strength to embrace your weaknesses. And so it's so amorphous, right? All this stuff is so amorphous, but that's really what best self to me is. I we're, we're trying to improve not just attorney, but everybody in the firm's health and wellness by being honest about it. And it's so important. And so for me, I've been at the firm, it'll be a year in December. I'm coming in, I'm learning the firm. I, I hear fully best self. I'm like, okay, you don't know what that is. I'm certain that what happened is I ran a couple across a couple of the articles that you'd written. And I recall reading this and being like, who is this person? Who is this <laughs> like crazy these, person this is, who's outing no, himself, right? Right. He's he's talking about, you know, vulnerability and, you know, and depression and, you know, going to a therapist and how he's navigated hard things. I'm pretty sure within the first, you know, I don't know, month or so of starting, I emailed you and was like, hi, Chris, this is amazing. Yeah. Just needed you to know, because that is actually really important to the work that I do. Uh, one, if we're not okay, we're hardly in a place to embrace embrace others, right? When you are stressed, anxious, depressed, whatever, and then someone comes in, it's like, you know, you should try to be more inclusive when you're just trying to keep your own stuff together. So we need to elevate the level of well-being in order to have more inclusion. Frankly, I, sure. I listened to a great talk about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how if certain, you know, base things aren't there. It's very hard to be like, let's work on belonging. But this but just vulnerability and honesty and candor are part and parcel to what I do professionally and frankly, just what I'm interested in most of the time. And so I emailed you, I guess at this point, it was like maybe two weeks ago because I'd read your latest article for Foley Best Self about gratitude to help navigate these extraordinary times. And I just read, I was like, yeah, it's time. I got to get Chris on the show. I can't, I can't delay this any longer, but to talk a little bit about it and you referenced it, you know, we're all dealing with month eight now of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're heading into winter and I definitely appreciate, and I think many do that, you know, you wrote this article being like, Hey, I have feelings about what's happening right now. I'm very blessed in a lot of ways. I mean, maybe not not nearly as affected as some, but we're entering what might be kind of a long, dark winter. And 
here's how I'm doing my best to cope with that. So I don't know if you could elaborate on that a bit. Yeah. Can I actually go backwards? Because I think this is of really course. important too. Like, I really want to, like, I le- I came to this sort of sense of things the hard way. You know, this was, I was, I was like everybody else, which is you deal with your stuff, you put your head down and you barrel through the wall, right? And I, I will, I'll be super blunt here, right? So I had to really re-examine some things about my life right at the same time when it was, you know, I was in that partnership queue, right? Like within months after being promoted to senior counsel and I was, you know, I was pushing hard, right? I was a hard, I was described as a hard charging associate in one of my reviews. In fact, I remember that, right? Cause I was, I was like saying, Hey, I'm doing the things you're telling me I should be doing. Where's the, you know, you said, this is what we're expecting. I'm delivering. Where's the promotion, right? Anyway, a couple months after that promotion, I learned that my spouse at the time was having an extramarital relationship and I was totally blindsided by it and just absolutely lost, right? In terms of, and then within like two weeks after that, she informed me that she was leaving and she was moving out of state and taking my two young daughters with her. And I was like, where's my choice in this? And I didn't, I don't get a choice, you know, this, and you know, the best thing was like, well, you're not taking my kids. Like, no, I'm no. And everybody kept saying, well, you know, once this sort of came out, oh, when are you moving back to LA? When are you moving back to LA? And I'm like, I'm not moving back to LA. I'm staying with my children, you know, but I was rocked. Right. And this was like, right at the time, like I'm in the partnership queue. I'm trying to make partner. I'm trying to keep it together. And I was so ashamed at the time because I'm like, you know, I thought I had it all. I thought I was doing all of the stuff. You're the hard driving associate. Everything's fine. Just right. I'm succeeding. I'm providing a good life for my family. My spouse doesn't have to work because I've got this covered, blah, blah, blah. And and this is what I get. I mean, it really rocked my identity um, and my sense of self. And to be entirely candid, I did not know of or adopt healthy coping mechanisms. I drank a lot instead. I went to work in the morning. I worked long hours. And on the days that I didn't have my kids, I went to my favorite neighborhood bar and ate and watched football or whatever and did it again the next day. You know, and but for one of my friends who on that first Thanksgiving when I was home by myself and feeling sorry for myself said, hey, let's go run this 5K. I'm like, okay, sure. I got nothing else to do. Let's do a turkey trot. I hadn't run a 5K since 1999. They sucked, right? And then after that, he says, why don't we do a couple Ironman? Let's let's do some triathlons. I'm like, sure, why not? I got nothing else to do. But it gave me a place where I was like, all right, I've got to have at least some discipline um, if I'm going to be doing these things. Because I don't really like, if you're going to do something, you should do it well, right? So I'm like, all right, well, I'm not going to just like show up to this Ironman. I'm going to train for it, right? And I look back at this now and I'm just so grateful that that was provided me because I, for years, like I really walked that balance between exercise and drinking as my coping mechanisms. And thankfully, neither one totally dominated. So I didn't go to like full-blown alcoholism. But at that same period of time, like I realized I was struggling. I was ashamed. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want people to know. I wanted people to think, I just wanted people to keep thinking he's a good lawyer. He's the future, blah, blah, blah. But I realized finally, like, I've got to do something about this. So that's when I finally sort of said, and I was the guy who was like, you know, mental health therapy is for weenies. It's for losers. It's not, it's not for me. It up. And finally, I'm like, no, I, I need some help, you know? And I was ashamed about even saying that, right? And I have come to the realization over the years that 
that was probably the single strongest decision I've ever made was realizing I needed help and accepting it and going out and getting it, right? And I have come 180 degrees from that where now, like, I believe this wholeheartedly, like, recognizing that you need help is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness, right? Doing something about it is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness, because we're all normal people. We all deal with crap in our lives. And, you know, when we think we're being strong, we're just hindering our ability to be strong and to really so over the course of you know 2011 to 2014 i was struggling and i was suffering and i was hurting and i was scared and i was trying my best you know the the only really like north star and i'm glad you are that I were my daughters like i'm gonna figure this out for my daughters because i'm gonna be a good dad i am not gonna have them have the same influences that ultimately led to these mental health problems that ultimately led to this blow up of our marriage. And while I cannot control any of the behaviors that my ex-spouse did or did, I can improve me. Control myself. Yep. I'm going to figure out how I contributed to this circumstance instead of being the victim. I'm going to try and get better at those kinds of things. And I'm going to try and set a better example for my kids so that they have a they can choose what influences they want to follow instead of having those influences forced down on them. And that was a long time and long run in the making, right? But it really wasn't until probably the summer of 2014 that I think I finally got there where I was finally like, you know what? I'm okay with me because I, I wasn't okay being alone. I honestly wasn't. And I finally, you know, in June of 2014, for reasons I won't go into, I was like, no, I'm okay. Like if I never, if I'm alone for the rest of my life is part of, in terms of like not having a partner, fine. Cause I got my daughters and I've got me. And that was the moment not long after when I met Natasha, as luck would have it, right? Like right place, right time. And everybody thought we were nuts. I knew within days of like really getting to know her that I was just, she was what was going to compliment me perfectly. And I was nuts about her and it was complicated. And again, I won't go into that, but you know, our relationship is far from perfect as every good marriage is, but you know, we trust each other because we've been through the ringer, we communicate well. And these are all things I had to learn, right? So anyway, you fast forward back to Foley and I'm slowly realizing like, man, I'm so glad I put that time in and I let myself be weak because I I was at a bad spot. And then I remember- but You let yourself you let yourself be a human. Though. Yeah, but I remember when we yeah. were at, so when Lori Santos spoke to us at a partner retreat a couple of years ago now, and it was very much about like wellness and- positive practices. I thought this is great, but it's like half the story, right? We're, we're missing the fact that we need to embrace the bad instead of just like talking about how we can be good. We've got to embrace the bad. And so I actually went up to Jay right after that thing. It was the last part of the partner retreat. And then everyone was in. I went up to him. I said, this was awesome, but we need to do more. And, and I will be the poster child. I will out myself as getting therapy because I think there are a lot of people out there who are suffering in silence because I did. And there are a lot of people who were ashamed because I was, and I had help and it's the best thing that ever happened. And I don't want anybody in this firm to suffer like I did if they don't want to. And so that's the genesis of best self, right? But like I had to learn it. I had to be at a real crisis moment in my own life and make a decision that like I I'm here in part because of my own choices 
may not be because of all of them. And it may not even be that I realized I was making those choices, but I chose to marry this person who I really, in retrospect, realized had some character challenges. And I look overlooked them. Why did I overlook them? Why didn't I make a good decision? You know, and so I am continuously trying to do that now, right? Which is understand that it is not my obligation to be perfect. It is my obligation to try and be the best version of me that I can be and accept that that's never, that's always going to be an imperfect process. Well, and to treat yourself with compassion. And you said so much just now that, you know, thank you so much for sharing. And these are things you've shared through the the articles you've written with Foley Best Self. But that, like I said before, that level of candor and to really talk about what goes on in the lives of people, you know, also lawyers is really powerful because otherwise there can just be this crushing feeling that I have to hide all of this. I need to focus on being perfect. I guess I'll just shove it down and have a breakdown when I'm 60, maybe I'm maybe a midlife crisis, I won't deal with it while I'm, you know, in it. But I think also as I've, you know, but on my own journeys and learned about my own tools with, you know, the hard stuff in life, these tools are there to help you, but they don't necessarily make it easy. There's not necessarily a shortcut, but to have someone say, going to therapy helped me navigate this to just make the suffering a little bit less is incredibly powerful. And I know I'm extremely grateful that we have you as a voice at Foley. To, to shed some light and to hopefully, you know, make it feel, make others feel safe, either admitting to themselves that they need some additional help or compassion or to share their stories as well. And here's the value delivery on that right now. I can tell you without a doubt, I am such a better attorney. I am such a better strategic partner to my clients now than I used to be because I'm so much more aware of me. Like my sense of self is so much more holistic. Like I know that I am not an emotional intelligence kind of guy. Like I don't function that way. I have to, and you know, like I tell the best value that I get from my ongoing mental health treatment, it's like, you know, maintenance now is this ability to intellectually understand what I'm feeling. Like I have to think through what I'm feeling to get to a place where I'm, I get it now. Cause I, you know, whereas Natasha, she, her emotional intelligence is off the charts, right? She's incredible in that way. And I learned so much from her, but that's part of the reason why we complement each other so well is I have to think through the emotion. She has to feel through the experience and together we find a really good place together, but get making yourself a better human will always make yourself a better attorney. It will always make yourself a better business person. It will always make yourself a better partner to your clients. Oh, that line hit me. Making yourself a better human will always make you a better attorney. That just hit me straight in the chest. It was like, oh my gosh. All right. We just have a few more minutes together. There's two things I want to hit on. One, as you've been sharing this journey, you've also touched a bit on the work you've been doing uh, as it relates to learning about racial justice and equity. I don't know if you have any comment on that, but when you said self-awareness and given what my role is at the firm, I just have to acknowledge that and really thank you for, for sharing as you've been on, on that journey. So I'll pause to see if there's anything worth saying before I ask you my final question. So the only thing I want to say on that is I'm learning, right? And I'm really trying to learn. I don't I don't really want to have a voice on that topic other than to say that I'm learning. Because I will tell you, I was one of those I was one of those people, not I mean 6 months ago I was one of those people who thought no, colorblind and egalitarianism is the way to go. And it really took me again Natasha to kind of be like you know I was an all lives matter kind of guy. I thought that was the right thing, right? And the analogy she gave me was, yeah, but when the house is burning down, the fire department doesn't show up and spray all of the houses. It sprays the water on the house that's burning. And the other thing she said was, if I said to you, I love you, and your response was, that's great, I love everyone, how would that make me feel? 
And that was like one of those like, wow, pulling the blinders off of my eyes moments where I realized like in the interest of trying to do the right thing and think the right way, I had it wrong. And that was sort of a, there was like a moment of disappointment where I was like, man, that's really hard for me to say. But it has really opened my eyes at the same point, too. And so I've, you know, you talk about it being a journey. I think I'm one step removed from the starting line. And that's okay, too. Like, that's that's the message I guess I want to pass on on this is I don't want to speak in terms of I know anything other than it's okay to be learning. And I am learning. Oh, my gosh, that is perfect. All right. My final thing as we wrap this up. Is there anything else that you'd like to hit on or just general final comments, takeaways, advice you would give to someone navigating a legal career? So there's actually three things that I would like to, you know, if you're navigating a legal career, if you're early on in the process or trying to figure out, one is it's okay to have boundaries, right? We we as an industry actually chew people up, or at least we create the impression that your life belongs to the firm and your life belongs to clients. And, you know, we, we sort of have to portray that to clients and from a service perspective, but it's also really critical to set boundaries, you know, and if you have a vacation, take your vacation, you know, plan for it, arrange for it or whatever, but take a vacation, you know, like if you're planning to do something, you don't necessarily need my approval unless you realize like this is right in the middle of trial or whatever, then figure that out. And as a corollary to that, I've realized like if I email somebody at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon saying, hey, can you do this? it's really incumbent upon me as a partner to then say, and I don't expect you to work over the weekend unless I do, right? If I need somebody to work over the weekend instead of demanding somebody does it, I think it's appropriate to ask for help. And if nobody's willing to do or able to do it, then ultimately it's my responsibility. I'm the partner. It's my relationship to get that work done. So, you know, observing, but set boundaries, right? Because otherwise this, this world can chew you up. And that means with clients too, right? Like set boundaries with clients. When they ask, are you available? It's okay to be like, hey, I'm actually changing my kid's diaper. Can I call you back in 10 minutes, right? Clients are people too, you know? And I, I have a, a very large client relationship. And I will tell you when they call me, I always answer. But the reason is that they don't call me inappropriately. You know, they have never once called me at, you know, 10 o'clock on a Friday night, unless it's been an honest to goodness crisis, because we've established that boundary amongst each other. So that's one, like you are a person and it's incumbent upon you to establish the boundaries that you think are appropriate while still realizing you've got to provide good service. You do have to be available. Like there is a tension between those two things, but you got to try and find it. So that's one. Two is be a problem solver, not well, let me put it in this context. Our academic system trains people to be parrots, right? We tell people, here's how you, here's what we expect you to do to be successful. And if you can do it, then you'll be successful and you have the pedigree. And I will tell you that I have never once gone to a, a first or second year attorney and said, I have a problem. I know what the answer is. Here's how I want you to solve the problem. What I tell them is, hey, I'm thinking this and I need an answer. And Every good associate I've ever seen is a problem solver, and they are a bit hungry. You know, they, they're not expecting to have the path laid out in front of them. They realize they've got to find it themselves. So that, to me, is the thing that distinguishes the the good associates from the ones who clearly have a future. And it's that they they view their job as being a problem solver. I wouldn't come to you if I knew the answer myself, right? So that's thing to and thing two, and then thing three is think differently, right? Like. You know, I remember early on doing, you know, 
labor and employment, just playing a single plane of work. And we would send out written discovery and we would send out requests for admissions before we took depositions. And almost inevitably, the, the responses we'd get back were worthless, right? It w- and But we'd get in discovery refinements. We'd spend tons of the client's money in a way that just didn't move the client's objectives forward at all. It really just benefited us. And, and I remember thinking, like, why do we do this? Like, why am I spending time propounding written discovery when I already know I'm just going to get the lawyer's answers and I'm not going to get any value from it? Like, why don't I just take the guy's deposition and let, let's like cut through points B, C, and D and get to Z, right? And at the time, I remember thinking like, uh, you know, I'm like a third year associate. That's not really my decision to make. But I sort of started doing that anyway. And I have realized, like, at least in an employment case, I've got all the information, right? Why am I asking the other side for the information I already have? Like, what I need is the plaintiff's admissions or whatever. So let's just go for that. And that kind of thinking is the same as being a problem solver, but doing it with the client's interest first. So if something in the practice of law, you know, you ever have a moment like, why do we do it this way? Listen to that voice and think about it, right? Because you know, I've been doing this now for a long time. Technology has changed in the time that I'm doing. The ways that I see are not necessarily the ways that are now the best and most efficient. And I really treasure when people like Patrick or John or Caleb or whoever come to me and say, I know this is what we do, but just hear me out on this. What do you think? Like, that's providing value. That's showing confidence, right? That's, I love that kind of stuff because I don't have all the answers. I have a lot of experience and that's valuable 95% of the time, but maybe 5% of the time it's a hindrance. And I need you to make me better so we can be a better team for the client. Thank you so much. That is fantastic advice and insight. The final, final thing, if people have questions, comments, want to reach out to you, is it okay if they find you Foley's website, shoot you an email? Absolutely. Sure. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. You're someone I could easily talk for hours. We'll stop it here. We may have to do an encore at some point. (laughs) But for now, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.